Good morning again. Excited to be here with you today. We are beginning a series on the book of Job, and so I'm very, very excited to be uh, starting this series uh, with you today. Uh, we do have, because Job is such a complex uh, work of literature, we have a short film that we'd like you to watch to kind of give you an overview of the book of Job. Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts. 
and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No, I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment, and so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job. That was done a whole lot better and a whole lot more succinctly than I would have done it. One of the great things about the book of Job is that it is a wonderful piece of literature. Even scholars that are not Christians or necessarily Bible-oriented believe that Job is an incredible piece of literature, of ancient literature, and even of, uh, it carries over into uh, today. And some of the things about literature we resonate with today. There's a part of the stories that we like, there's a part of literature where someone who's common, someone who is ordinary, gets sucked up into a greater adventure than their own. You see it all the time, right? Luke Skywalker gets sucked up into the grand story of the rebellion, and he finds out that, spoiler, Darth Vader is his dad, and he gets all uh, tied up in this larger, larger adventure, right? The, the Pevensey kids in the Chronicles of Narnia go through the wardrobe, and they find out there's this greater place called Narnia, and they wind up finding out that they are kings and queens, and, and they join this grand adventure in Narnia. Frodo leaves the Shire, right? If, if it's just a story about a hobbit in a little village, it's not that interesting, but he, he goes to Mordor to take the ring, and it's a grand story. Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, they're all stories about a common everyday person that you and I relate to going on a larger adventure. And sometimes when you're a kid, you read these stories and you're like, man, that's what I want. I want adventure, right? I want to go on that story. I want to I be like that. And then as your life moves forward and you make certain decisions that close off other avenues towards you, you decide to pursue a certain major or go on a certain career path or choose to do a, a certain thing or go to a certain place, marry a certain person, have certain kids, other doors and other opportunities for adventure close off to you. And the more you get kind of stuck in this pattern, stuck in this rut, you begin to feel like you're not a part of this greater, grander adventure 
but rather that you're a part of something that's mundane, meaningless, and disconnected. Life seems to be a train on a track just running, and things begin to feel meaningless. Do you ever feel like things that happen to you are meaningless, without sense or purpose? I know I do sometimes. I sometimes feel like life isn't maybe uh, something that happens to me is not a part of God's greater plan, but rather something that feels random and at chance. So what I want us to talk about today as we begin to dive into this story of Job, we're going to look at at several uh, juxtaposed ideas. This week is heaven and earth. And I want us to think about what it is that connects those two things. And I want us to see how it is that worship is actually the thing that gives meaning to our lives. It, it structures and it gives purpose to these series of seemingly random events that happen to us. We're going to be in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, and uh, that's where we're going to camp out today. And the first thing we're going to look at is the earth, second heaven, and then lastly their connection between the two. So the earth alone, the earth by itself, lacks meaning. The earth alone lacks meaning. Apart from God, apart from being a part of this greater story, we lack significance. We lack meaning. If this is all that there is, if I'm the central character of the story, if I'm the protagonist, then it's a very small story indeed, and it seems to lack meaning. Our stories look less amazing and less fantastic than maybe they could be. We are Frodo who never left the Shire. We are the four children that never discovered the wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. We're just trapped in sort of a mundane, meaningless life. And the story of Job would look very similar to a meaningless story if we remove the supernatural parts from it. And so the way that I want to read it today, and maybe this won't do justice to the literature, is to look first at only the earthly portions of the story. Then we'll go back and look at the heavenly portions, and then we'll look and see what connects the two. So let's start in Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So that tells us a little bit about Job and a little bit about who he is. And if this is all we have, if earth is all that we get, then we become defined by our successes. We become defined by our successes. Job is incredibly wealthy. He's probably one of the most successful businessmen of his time. He has a perfect family. He literally has a perfect family. Do you know how I know this? He has seven sons and three daughters. Those are perfect numbers in Scripture. The author is trying to tell you that everything's perfect. Everything is good. He has a diverse portfolio. Scholars can't decide whether he's a nomadic farmer or a farmer himself, and so they've just landed on the fact that he's probably both. He has a diverse portfolio. He he has crops, he does harvests, and he has livestock. He would have been upright and a good member of his community. He was a faithful churchgoer. He's a good man. And if this is all this story is about, if this is all that there is, then this list becomes more important than just telling us about Job and all the things that he stood to lose when this catastrophe happens to him. It becomes who Job is. This is everything about him, if the earth is all that there is. And for many of us, maybe this is all we are too. 
If I were to ask you today, who are you? You would give me your name. But if I would press you further, you would tell me what you do for a living, perhaps where you live, where you go to church, how many children or grandchildren you have, whether or not you're married. We become defined by our successes. Who I am is what I do and what I accomplish. That's who I am. That's who I am. And we have this grand struggle to separate our identity from what it is that we do and what we accomplish. And so if we're defined by our successes, what does that make failure? It means that we are destroyed by our failures. We're destroyed by our failures. Look at verse 13. We're going to skip uh, the heavenly section, come back to it. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans, that's kind of a, a bandit tribe, a nomadic tribe, fell upon them and took them and struck the, down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job lost everything in a single day. It seems to be a single moment. It's like the October, 29th stock, or October 1929 stock market crash, but localized to one human being. This didn't affect anybody else but him. From a material perspective, Job goes from being one of the most wealthy people to one of the poorest in an instant. And we know that he's one of the poorest because in chapter 2, verse 8, he's described as sitting amongst the ashes, meaning he's sitting in a garbage dump, just hanging out. And if we're summed up by what we do and what we have, then what, when we lose everything, when everything gets wrecked, who we are becomes wrecked. We're cut off from the mooring of success and, 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 and accomplishment, and we wind up adrift. I think this is why many retired people struggle when they initially retire, because you've spent the last 40, 50 years, whatever, doing whatever it is that you do, being successful, and then you're retired, the phone stops ringing, nobody cares what you think about the company anymore, and you're lost. It's why many people, when faced with difficult circumstances, when they lose something, suicide becomes a viable option for them. It's because they already feel dead inside why not just be dead? And if that's something that you're thinking about or struggling with today, I would love to talk with you about it because that's not the answer. It may be what it feels like, but it is not the answer. And so if there's a larger, no larger connection between our narrative and the narrative taking place, the grander narrative, then these disasters aren't localized to a person. They're universal, right? They're universal disasters. It's because I'm the center of my universe. If there's not a larger story, if there's no God, if there's nothing beyond this earth, then this disaster is universal because it's happening to me and I'm the center of my universe. When I get sick and I stay home from work, typically my wife, my daughter, they go, uh, wife goes to school, wife goes to work, daughter goes to school, 
and, and I sit at home, and if I'm feeling up to it, I may manage to make my way out to the Holy Land and go to Chick-fil-A to get some chicken noodle soup to kind of be a balm on me. And I'm always surprised, I'm always struck by how many people are still going about their day, because I'm thinking to myself, aren't you guys supposed to be sick too? I'm like, isn't the world supposed to stop when I stop? That probably shows a little bit of my arrogance. But for some of us losing our job or being forced to downsize because of economic difficulties makes us feel like things are worse than if a hurricane hit somewhere else in the world because it's happening to us. And this is what makes Job such a relatable person. Because this isn't happening. It's not a city that got wiped out. It's not a people group that got wiped out. It's just a man. And we can definitely identify and relate to a man who loses everything. And so if we're defined by our successes because there's nothing beyond this earth, and if failures are so catastrophic, if there's nothing beyond this earth, then that means one thing about our pain. It means our pain has no purpose. Our pain has no purpose. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. If there's no larger story going on behind the book of Job, this is the end of the story of Job. This is the end of the book. It's a happy tale of a man who had everything, lost everything, and sat in a garbage dump and picked its sores with a piece of pottery. Have a great week. Go with God. That's the end of it. We wouldn't be talking about this story anymore because there would be absolutely no reason to discuss it. It's a pointless story if it ends here. There's no moral of the story. It's not a moral story because you can't point at it and say, don't be like Job. Job does nothing wrong. The Bible's very clear that he does nothing to deserve what happens to him. So it's not a cautionary tale. There's no higher purpose. There's no calling to something greater. It's simply a history, and it's a boring one at that, if it ends in chapter 2. And you might say, well, it's about pain and suffering, and that happens to everybody. Pain and suffering happens to all of us. It's all coming, and you would be right about that. It's true. Every single one of us, if you haven't already, you will experience pain, loss, hurt, defeat, failure, and the absolute devastation that can come with those things. And if earth is all that there is, there's no super reality to go with our reality, then there's no purpose in the pain. There's no structure, there's no meaning behind it. It's not there to make you stronger because there's not a greater fight coming. Right? Life's not like a video game where the bosses get harder the more you go into the game. The hardest thing that ever happened to you might have happened to you when you were 13 or 14. Is that supposed to make you stronger for what? For something greater later on? Probably not. If there's no larger purpose, no larger narrative. It's not there to teach you a lesson because guess what? There's no teacher to instruct us. It's not there to prune you or make you grow because there's no larger garden to be a part of. You are the garden. And this is it. The summary of the book of Job, if it stops here, is really just a rehash, a shorter version of the book of Ecclesiastes. Read uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, 
and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. That is a summary of the story of Job if it ends here. If there is no larger purpose, no larger narrative for us to join into, that's the summary of our lives as well. Job is a series of unfortunate events divorced from a larger reality, and it has no meaning. But we all know there's a greater story happening. We know there's a greater narrative, and it's heaven. Heaven is the greater narrative. Heaven is the greater story. Now, I don't necessarily mean that it's greater in that it's more important or larger, even though it certainly means those things. What I mean is that it is greater in its importance. It's greater in its weight. And I don't mean that heaven uh, is just a place. I mean a larger supernatural reality that we get to be a part of as Scripture describes it. So why is this story greater? Why is it a greater story? Well, one, it's greater because the main character is better. The protagonist is better. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1 of Job. This is right after we meet Job, and then it transitions to a heavenly scene. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down upon it. I want you to look at the setting and think about what's being depicted here. The entire heavenly host, the heavenly army, is appearing before God, who is sovereign over all things, and particularly sovereign over the group that is meeting here. It's basically a king reviewing his troops and receiving reports about what's going on in his world, in his kingdom. And we all know God is sovereign over all. And there's one person who's not supposed to be there. And this person is Satan. In the video, they called him the Satan, which is a title. It's the accuser. We use Satan like a proper noun. Don't think of him as the little devil with pitchforks. It's a, it's a title, like lawyer or or, sorry, that probably implied too much there. I didn't mean it. Sorry. <laughs> it's a title for him, right? And so the king is reviewing his troops, and there's Satan here, and he's not supposed to be there. And we know that he's not supposed to be there because of the way the text reads. It says, he is among the sons of God, which means he's sticking out like a sore thumb. And God calls him out. And why does God call him out? Because God sees all, he knows all, and he knows that Satan's not supposed to be there. And what does Satan do when God speaks? He answers him. Do you know why he answers him? Because he has to. Notice Satan doesn't start the conversation. God notices him, engages with him, and Satan can't ignore him because you can't ignore God when he speaks to you. And Satan responds to him. God is so powerful, so sovereign, that Satan has to answer. This isn't a duality between God being the personification of good, although he is, and Satan being the personification of evil. Satan is not uh, on equal terms with God in power or in majesty. God is so much better of a main character than we are because our story, the story, is written to revolve around him. Attempting to remove him from the story is like Star Wars without Luke Skywalker 
Or it's like the Chronicles of Narnia without Aslan. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It's about him. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 to 28 tells us that all things become subjected to God at the end. At the end of good fairy stories, fairy tale stories, the good guy wins, right? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all that happens when the good guy wins. It lets us peek to the last chapter. And God is the good guy. God is the main character. He's the protagonist, which is good because he's a really perfect main character. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's powerful. He's good. And it's all these things that create a lot of the tension in Job. And we'll read this as we move forward over the next several weeks. Because God is good, because he's all-powerful, because he's just, this creates the tension in the story of Job. Because how could a good God, how could a just God, how could an all-powerful God allow these things to happen to Job? And this is what Job wants to know. And so we'll journey with Job and answer some of those questions as we move forward. God is a rich main character because he's so real. He's so relatable to us. So God is, it's a greater story because God is a better main character. It's a greater story also because the main character engages with with us. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God repeats this again in chapter 2, verse 3. God is not a God of the deists, who set the world in motion and then walked away. Dr. McGrath talked a lot about that last week. God is a God who engages, who is sovereign over creation, and he works and engages with the things that he creates. Notice how God kind of talks trash to Satan and uses Job to do it. He's bragging on Job. Now, he's not worshiping one of his creations, but he is singing the praises of somebody who's he's created. He's proud of Job. He's happy with what Job has done. The creator of the universe is, is about his creation. God always wants to interact with his creation. In fact, you see it in Genesis. Right when he creates, he's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve break fellowship with him by eating the fruit, the story of the Bible is God trying to get his creation back. The primary way that God has interacted with us is through his son. The incarnation is evidence that God wants to interact with the characters in the story that he's both the main character in and the story that he's writing. The grand story of Scripture is God reclaiming that creation for himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. That wasn't plan B. That was the plot all along. And so it's greater because God interacts with us. He meets with us. He wants a relationship with us. He desires to be close to us. We're not pawns in a game. We're rich, vivid characters in a story that's larger than our own. And so the story is greater because the main character wants to be with us. And it's also greater because the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he is is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand, which God, the second time around, allows Satan to inflict pain upon Job, physical pain. Now you might be thinking to yourself, man, if God had just kept his mouth shut, then Job would have avoided all of this, right? 
It's like me in basic training. When I was in basic training with the Army, my goal when I walked in was I don't want any drill sergeants to know my name. Because that meant that I'm not the best, and that means I don't have more responsibility. And I'm not the worst, which means more push-ups. So I just wanted to be right there in the middle, fly under the radar. And that's pretty self-centered too, now that I think about it. That's the attitude of someone who's trying to make the story all about themselves. Rather than recognizing something that probably the army was trying to teach me was that success is a part of a team, rather than just your own uh, grandeur and your own comfort. If we're characters in the greater story of God, we don't want to be like I was in, in basic training. We want God to call us out. We want God to bring us, to challenge us, to take us out of the Shire, to take us into Narnia with him. We want to go on that adventure with him. But if I'm the center of my universe, if I'm comfortable and happy, guess what? I don't desire that. I have fear at the thought of something, someone coming to get me and taking me on a greater story because I'm comfortable and I'm happy. But in that comfort and in that apparent happiness, you know what you find? Meaninglessness. You're adrift. You're cut off. If I am about the greater story of God, do you know what I want? I want that story to be told, even at the cost of myself. It's better to be a character in the story that maybe loses everything than to not be a character in the story at all. And this gives our life purpose. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, this is the second round of interaction between him and Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. That without reason isn't like, oh, just willy-nilly, Job didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve it. That's exactly what God's saying. God's saying, Job didn't deserve to have this happen to him, but there is a purpose behind what God is doing. That's not what God is talking about here. God says that he was incited for no reason, but it doesn't mean there wasn't a greater purpose. There is a greater purpose, and there's a greater purpose for each of you and a greater purpose for me as well. The Westminster Catechism is famous for its first question. First question doesn't start with who is God or, or what does he do or tell me about Jesus and the cross. It asks, what is the chief end of man? And the response of the person being catechized is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose in life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose of our story. That's the grander story. That's the narrative. That's the stakes that are in place. Jesus died to give your life purpose and meaning, to anchor your story to his story and thereby make it greater. And so, Travis, this all sounds wonderfully fascinating, but how do I engage this story? How do I connect the dots of meaning and purpose with what I'm going through today? The answer is worship. Worship is the portal that I take to the greater story. Worship is the portal that I take to the greater story. In every fantastic story, there's always like a secret gateway, a little portal that the characters go through to get to the magical land, right? In The Wizard of Oz, it was a tornado. Tornado took him, took her. In Alice in Wonderland, it's a literal door. In the Chronicles of Narnia, it's the back of a cupboard or back of a wardrobe. They just keep walking, right? It's how they get through. In Harry Potter, it's the platform nine and three quarters. They can run through the wall, and all of a sudden, they jump on the train, and they go to Hogwarts, and they have all their adventures together there. And in our story, the magic portal to the larger story is worship. It's worship. Look at what Job does at the end of every earthly section, and you'll see that it's worship. 
Because worship does things to us. The first thing it does, it reminds us that we're not the main character. Worship reminds us that we're not the main character. Look at verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually, daily. He's worshiping. He's entering into the larger story. Job worships and honors God, not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his children. Because Job shows us what we all know to be true. There's a larger story that God is the source of all life, and all life is answerable to him because God is the central focus of everything. When I worship God, whether it's here on Sunday morning or whether it's before I go into work, whenever it is that I worship God, corporately or personally, I'm acknowledging that God is the main character of the story. I'm not the protagonist. I'm asking God to take over my life. And unless this is a regular daily practice for you, you will occupy that protagonist role. You'll occupy that main character role more than you'll want to and your life will lose meaning. We have to turn the story over to God. We have to ask the main character every day, where are we going today, Lord? What are we doing today? And then we go on the adventure with him. And then work, family, all of it starts connecting to the moorings of this larger story. And it has significance because it reminds me that I'm not the main character. I'm a supporting actor. I'm a supporting actor. And so worship reminds me that I'm not the main character. It also directs my circumstances to God's purposes. Directs my circumstances to God's purposes. Look at verse 20. After the first round of Job losing everything, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. Following Job's first round of losses, he orients himself to the plans and purposes of God. Remember, Job doesn't know the backstory. He doesn't know what's going on with Satan and God. He doesn't understand all that. But he still orients what happened to him to the hand of God. Even though everything that happened you could attribute to just random chance. A couple of bandit raids destroy everything. You have a lightning bolt fall from heaven and destroy a bunch of sheep which seems pretty amazing, and then you have a, a whirlwind that comes by and knocks over a house. All of these things are sort of natural things that happen. But Job says, nope, they came from the Lord. He lays responsibility for both his prosperity and his misfortune at the hands of God, and that's not blaming God. He's acknowledging his sovereignty, and he's acknowledging God's right to do exactly that. And so that shows you that God or that Job worships out of his circumstances. When things were good, Job sacrificed and he went to work. When things were bad and he didn't have work to go to anymore, you know what he did? He shaved his head, he put ashes on his head, he ripped his clothes and he fell down and he worshiped. Like Job, I need to worship out of my circumstances. God doesn't want you to worship out of anything but your circumstances. So if you're here today, you should not be expected to put on a grand happy face in worship if things are not good. You worship out of your circumstances. If things are great, if things are good, then you better be wearing a happy face. We worship out of our circumstances. We allow Scripture to form and shape our circumstances, what we should think, our perspective about them. But if I'm going through a season of depression, you know what? I shouldn't 
put the expectation on myself, nor should anyone else, that when I walk in here, I've got to have a big fake smile plastered on my face. That's not worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's a lie. And so worship shows me that my circumstances are what I worship out of, but they're not the final word because it connects me to a larger story. Worship also shows us and the world that we believe God's story. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of, one of the foolish women would speak. He's not calling her foolish. He says you're speaking like a foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's response is one of faith. He's trusting the overall plan and purpose of God. And Job is answering his wife, and in doing so, he's unknowingly answering the challenge of Satan. I think it's the reason why after this you don't see Satan anymore in the book, because Satan's been dealt with and answered. And like, like a locust, like, like the violent murderer that Satan is, he did his damage and he's moved on. He didn't care what happened after this. But uh, St. Augustine calls uh, Job's wife the Diablos Agitrix, which means Satan's advocate or the devil's advocate. His words are in her mouth, and you can kind of sympathize and understand with her. She's also lost everything. And so her words give voice to the challenge of Satan in Job's ear, and Job responds with worship. He says, no, I have faith, and I'll worship God no matter what happens. He's saying he trusts in the Lord. When we worship, we make God's larger story our story too. The first time, way we need to do this, the, the, if you've never walked through that portal before of worship, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, that offer is on the table. The Lord stands before you, and he's offering you a chance to come with him on a larger adventure that you've maybe never been a part of. And all you have to do is to trust and believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to know that his body, his blood, is the bridge to which we cross to join this larger narrative. It's the grounds upon which we worship. If you don't have Christ as your Savior, you cannot worship because we're called to worship in spirit and in truth. And you receive the spirit through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and believing in him. Maybe you are a believer today. You need to keep going into the story. You need to keep jumping into that portal. You'll never grow old. You'll never age out. You'll never be like the kids in Narnia who were told, oh, you'll never come back to Narnia. You'll never come back because you've gotten too old. You'll never get too old for the story of the gospel. You're never going to graduate from Hogwarts. The story is always here. It's always in a fantastic world to be a part of. And you know what the best part about this story is? It's real. It's not a fantasy. It's not something somebody dreamed up. It's real. And in fact, I can tell you that all the amazing stories that we turn to in our literature are probably because we're always looking for this greater narrative to be a part of. And brothers and sisters, it is there for you to join in. It's there for you to join into. Worship is the portal that we take to go on this larger adventure. You enter into it every time you come in this room. You enter into it every time you open your Bible. Every time you forgive someone. Every time you proclaim the greatness of God. Every time you share Christ with another, you are, you are entering into the story. Worship changes everything you do, and it changes who you are. So I use this analogy of literature, and I hope that it wasn't too distracting chopping up everything like I did. But I use this analogy of literature because Job is a great work of literature. And I'd like for us to approach it with a little bit of a literary background as we looked at it. Don't confine yourself to the earthly story. 
but allow God through His Spirit to bring you into His larger narrative, and He does that by drawing you into worship, by drawing you into worship. At the end of the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Lucy and Edmund are being told that they're never coming back to Narnia because they're too old. And Lucy, crying, tells Aslan, who's the sort of the Christ figure in the books of Chronicles of Narnia, says, it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? And Aslan responds by saying, but you shall meet me, dear one. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund. And Aslan responds, I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name, and you must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. The name is Jesus Christ, and you have been brought here today to know him for a little while so that you might know him better out there. Let's pray together. Father God, we give you praise and glory because you have called us into a larger story, a larger adventure that none of us could have dreamed up, none of us could have fantasized about, although we have tried many times. And so, God, we come to you and we offer ourselves. And in fear and some trepidation, perhaps, we ask you to take us on this great adventure that is walking with you. We may never find out the grand purposes that you have for our lives, but we can know that it's used in your service if we would but turn and worship. And so, God, we give you our worship. We give you our, your glory today. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now where we sing our response to God. You will respond in your seat, but we'll offer worship to God and we'll say, Lord, take us on this greater story, and first we need to see the story. So we'll sing, Be Thou My Vision, together. Let's sing.